The 8th Bioceuticals Research Symposium is going digital and will take place over four weekends from the 6th to the 28th of June 2020. For more information and to register your place, go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Jessica Cox, who holds a Bachelor of Health Science in Nutrition and is the founder of JCN Clinic, based in Brisbane, Australia. She's a passionate foodie, recipe developer, and with close to 15 years of clinical experience with a focus on digestive health. Jess is well respected for her no-fad approach and utilising evidence-based nutrition, she's created her own blog, which is an expression of everything she loves rolled into one, including her passion for creating recipes that cater for food intolerances and digestive issues. Welcome to FX Medicine. Jess, how are you? Good, thanks for having me. Now, we'll be discussing today the importance of dietary guidance with microbiota testing. So this is a massive issue, massive area with lots of controversy over it. So I've got to ask first off, when do you do microbiota-based testing? So because our client base is generally coming to us with a lot of chronic uh, long-standing gut issues, it is something that we tend to do with a large portion of our clients in saying that we're not willy-nilly about testing. We really talk to people uh, about where they're at as far as even financials, but essentially through really good thorough case-taking with that initial consult, we'll ascertain whether we need to dig deeper with the testing. And look, to be honest, we usually find that a lot of people who are coming to us have been dealing with gut issues for so long and trying so many different things that they really are ready to just invest in getting more information. And for us, we find it's a way of really understanding and seeing what's going on at that microbiota level so we have more information. I always say to my clients, it's like a window in there so I know more about what's going on specifically and we can get to treatment more specifically too. Given that, you know, you can change your microbiota in your gut over a week if you change from a meat-based to a plant-based diet, and you've also, I've discussed with other practitioners about even changes um, from, say, uh, female hormones during the cycle, when do you tend to do that test in patients? It really, to be honest, is something that we just utilize based on what's going to be convenient for them. Like right. I'd, I'd love to say it was something that we could be more strategic about and um, look at, okay, if it's a female, where are you within your cycle and so forth. But we, again, we're dealing with that person on that individual basis. And realistically, they are just like, I want to get this done now. Let's get this information now. And also what we're doing um, from a dietary perspective is we want to get an idea of what their gut is doing right now at that time based on what they're currently eating. So for us, it's 
it's like, well, let's see what your gut is expressing now with the current dietary intake you have, and then we can make changes once we have that information. Gotcha. And do you tend to do a pre-treatment and a, a treatment, um, one, let's say, after, say, I don't know, three, four, five, six months? Uh, sorry, do you mean with retesting? A, re- a repeat, yeah. Sometimes we try to get our clients to at least wait six months if they do want to retest. Great. Um, so we think that, and, and we have found this with retesting, that you need a minimum of those six weeks to really start to see some changes there. But even six, sorry, six months, um, I feel sometimes is too short of a window. And often most of our clients find that once they've done that initial test, mm. if they're feeling great, in six months or, or 12 months or whatever that time frame is, then they're not really that fussed about retesting. And we tend to be guided by that too. Like ultimately, it's about how that person feels. Yeah. So do they need to spend another four to $600 on a test when ultimately they're feeling well, their diet's really expansive? You know, that it's sort of a question that I pose to them and leave the ball in their court sometimes in that regard. What can you tell us about the type of testing that's done? Is it like a... Uh, what, forgive me, is it 16S, the shotgun? Yes. Right, yeah, okay. We, yeah, we tend to uh, use at the – we kind of jump around between different laboratories at the moment. Um, so, yes, we, we tend to use always that type of sequencing, looking at the gut. We're generally looking at getting the most comprehensive that we can, and that, again, will depend on, on the client. So if possible, we'll be looking at getting – a picture of um, parasitology. We'll be looking at getting that full breakdown of bacteria. Uh, we'll also be looking at trying to get what we can as far as yeast, which can, you know, can be a little bit controversial in what you can actually capture there. Yeah. And then we're looking to see if we can also invest in getting those inflammatory markers and digestive markers as well. So, you know, if we're if we're having someone invest in the testing, we usually like to try and get that full sweep. I love what you're saying about inflammatory markers and things like that because it gives a picture as to what this bacteria is causing you to react with. Exactly. So, what about things like uh, you know food fibers and things like that in the feces? In 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 the testing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that will be again, as you just said, it's it's really good because we can look at those different breakdowns as well and see that interrelationship. So if we're looking at seeing um, certain types of bacteria that are at a lower level and then we're seeing um, perhaps uh, uh, certain plant fibres that are too high in the stool or um, if we're seeing some types of bacteria that are too high, particularly I would say with the... um, the, the sort of more sulfur thriving bacteria, we might also be seeing an expression of higher fats in the stool. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we can see, we can start to see relationships there. And as a practitioner, it can give us more information and, and I would say also confidence in which pathway we go down. So, um, and, and as you highlighted with those inflammatory markers, if we're seeing an expression of, say, low acomancia, um, and then we're also seeing raised secretory IgA and perhaps issues around helpractin and so forth. We really 
we really can understand, okay, there's a lot going on in a mucosal layer and that's going to need a lot of attention. Yeah. Like, you know, like I often question when we're talking about a faecal test, we're we're talking about what comes out, not what's necessarily on the lining. Um, Yeah. And then you've got to say, okay, well, if you get lots of food fibres in the in the stool, you've really got to start right back at the mouth. You've really got to start yeah. look at chewing and <laughs> exactly. and relaxing. You know, so it really does start back with these general dietary advice with simple eating practices. Yeah, you're exactly right. It does, and that's where I find the test in conjunction with really good case taking is so important because you can you can see these things presenting in some test results but you can also talk to your client and find out that they are rushing through their day they yeah, are yeah. eating when they're stressed and and they're on the go you you can you can put all of those pieces to, of the puzzle together and of course like these types of tests are amazing but they're not perfect like they're they're a piece of the puzzle that we can use in unison with a client so yeah they're they're a great adjunct mm. but then they're not everything let's talk about the dietary advice because as we talk about digestion is often thought to start with the mouth but i love mike ash's advice that it actually starts in the head with the cephalic yeah. phase so how much emphasis do you put on chilling before a meal (laughs) (laughs) as much as possible it's a hard one it really is because you know I always say to my clients it it sounds easy like when we're talking about you know removing stress and and eating in a, a lower stress environment it seems like such an easy thing to do but it can be one of the hardest oh yeah um so trying to work with clients when you can see that there's issues going on there in relationship to them even just being in that rest and digest mode. It, it is something that you need to work through and go, okay, what can we do here? Can we can we create an environment where you just take literally five minutes just to sit down and take a couple of breaths and just really smell the meal and connect with the meal and then just eat um, that meal? Think about putting the fork down in between mouthfuls, yes. which sounds, again, really simple, but it actually works. These guidelines can be individuals, right? I- individualized, yes. right? So, you know, you spoke about the busy professional, the middle of the day, city eating versus, you know, the, the family meal at night with a larger family where everybody's having a social engagement. How do you individualize dietary practices to mm-hmm. suit that person while still trying to get a healthy outcome? Yeah, it's such a good question. It's something we're so passionate about. Um, So I think first and foremost, you have to understand the person. As you just said, we've got people with different sorts of lifestyles, different stresses Mm. and different, different ways of living their life. So we have, we can have like a, a really Um, sort of perfect ideal of how we want someone to eat and the foods we want them to have more of and less of and avoid and so forth. But we need to make sure that that's going to be achievable for that person. So for me and for us at JCM, what we will do is spend a lot of time, and it sounds again really simple, but I think I personally believe it's something that's not done enough, is going through with a client and saying, okay, what are you actually eating right now? What is your base diet? 
what are you able to commit to, um, what sort of food do you like, what do you enjoy, how much time do you have at this current moment to put into breakfast, to lunch, what can we negotiate on, okay, where, where can I ask you to spend a little bit more time on this meal or that meal, what, what's your negotiables on spending an extra hour to somewhere throughout your week to do some batch cooking and some organisation for the week ahead. So it's really it's developing a relationship with that client so that you can work out a foundation that you can build a food plan from because I, I truly believe if that time isn't put in and we just we just hand a client some test results and a prescription with some supplements and um, a table of avoid these foods and push them out the door, we don't get the results mm. in the long run because they can't commit to that. There's no guidance, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. On that line, though, when you've got people that are, you know, the continual high-stress type A city worker, whatever, do you tend to employ more things like, you know, digestive herbs, aperitifs, uh, maybe digestive enzymes or probiotics as well? Do you do you find yeah. that, that these well, are the people that say, look, just give me a pill? There's a little of that, but because we're so passionate about our food hmm. um, and, and teaching them a foundation of eating well, it's, it's certainly, it can be a tool we can use, but we'll be very, very mindful of educating them as we go and trying to instill some some new habits. So, yes, we will use probably more. um, There would be enzymes that we would utilise a fair bit in in that context. But honestly, again, we would be talking with that client and looking at, okay, what is happening in that go, go, go morning? Like let's look at, for instance, say it's a, a smoothie that we can spend, even if we're sitting spending 15 to 20 minutes figuring out what we're going to do with this smoothie, what ingredients we're going to put in it, how are they going to make it work, are they going to take a Nutribullet into the works and put their ingredients there to put it together, what are they going to do at lunch, how are we going to work that out? And I find I honestly find after years of working with so many different people and different stressful environments that anyone anyone can make it work in the context of their day. It's just putting some time into working out a plan with them around their food in the way that we might put a lot of time into figuring out the perfect supplements to take. Yeah. And when we're talking about enzymes, do you tend to... A, like employing uh, fermented foods, and B, what's your acceptance like in the general population? With the fermented foods, yeah. so it would depend on where they were at with their their gut health. So often, and I'm generalising, of course, but often what we'll do with our clients in the initial stages, if there's a lot going on with their gut, we may in those stages move away from the fermented foods mm-hmm. while we're in that um, more of a um, trying to remove adverse bacteria, parasites, yep. et cetera. Yep. So at that point, we may not be using them, but then what we will do is we will go through an introductory phase, which is a big part of what we build into our dietary guidelines and um, our, our treatment guidelines as we move through them. So we will very um, systematically introduce 
fermented foods and different types of um, fibrous foods to ascertain their tolerability. And generally, as we're working through that process and working through building up the resilience and the integrity of their gut health, we'll find that those foods are tolerated. So often you'll find someone who know, they'll say to you at the beginning, I can't even look at sauerkraut, it turns my stomach inside out, as opposed to 12 weeks down the track, they're being able to add maybe a heap teaspoon to their meals a couple of times a week with no issues, which is, of course, our goal as as a practitioner to create that expansion in their diet. Yes, I love what you're saying about this improving the resilience, the terrain. It, it just, yeah. I just think as practitioners, we keep forgetting about this. Like rather than treating a symptom right now and smothering mm-hmm. it, we have to look back at the reasons why things are happening, address them, and and they tend to be mitigated if not go away. Exactly, that's exactly right. So. As practitioners, how can we customise meals and recipes to support the microbiota that you're testing in the initial phases? And, and you know, so what are the, some of the results that you've gained if you've, if you've had retests? So I think firstly to that question in regards to putting these types of um, dietary plans together, it comes back again to... One, understanding like we've been talking about the client's or the patient's lifestyle and what's achievable there, Mm. but also putting that into context with their symptom picture through a thorough case-taking and those test results. So from that, we can get an understanding of if we've got um, A, B and C issues going on. So if we've got, you know, um, these types of bacteria species that are too dominant, we've got these that are undergrown, we need to think about what foods at this initial starting point we need to be stepping away from and then we need to be looking at what foods we want to be including more of. That might be on an, a specific ingredient level. It also might be about the type of, of dietary intake too. So are we are we needing to look at for this person that they do have a lower fat intake and more of a higher plant-based expression of food? Um, and how do we look at starting that pathway? Because you can get these test results back and go through someone's diet while they're sitting in that room with you and you can you can tell by talking to them and seeing the results, oh, my God, they need to really increase all of these beautiful plant fibres and they need to feed all of these poorly starved ruminococcus and so forth that are just dying to be fed. But you know that you can't just turn them from a very restrictive, say if they put themselves on a paleo-type diet, straight over to that because they're going to – they're never going to come back to you. You're going to cause so many symptoms. So what we need to do is is walk them through stages where we can start with a more soothing – um, easier to digest type of diet and then look at what foods we can then introduce as we go week to week and see them, build, to come back to that word again, build a stronger resilience. So it's that combination of bringing in the the key supplements that you might utilise in relation to those um, results that you now have and then as you reduce the number of the adverse species that might be at play, but also you're supporting that that gut permeab the, the gut lining and reducing gut permeability, doing all of those things 
creating an environment where there's less reactive foods, then we can say, okay, four weeks later with this person, you do have these particular strains that are low. Let's focus on trying to bring in these types of resistant starch foods and see how you go with these. And we can we can create a plan where we can slowly walk them into a more diverse diet. Do you employ the lactulose mannitol test to look at uh, intestinal permeability and do you find a difference when you institute dietary changes? Um, look, we don't really use that so much as a testing method. Um, I'm probably more, if I'm suspecting gut permeability, I'm probably more going from seeing raised inflammatory markers, low acomantia, um, seeing issues around secretory IgA, and then again, probably more symptom picture um, as far as systemic issues like um, classic aching joints, um, fatigue and so forth. Perhaps also looking at zonulin as well, testing zonulin. They're probably where we would more go with testing in that realm. And you mentioned also that you're not a fan of fad diets. Now, you know, we've got fad diets versus chosen diets. Um, You know, I've spoken to people like Dom D'Agostino about keto nutrition and things like that, which is hard, but has its use. So Mm -hmm. when you're talking about paleo, keto, is the problem restriction? And how do you address uh, yeah. that? Definitely, I I think the problem is restriction. And that's what we see over and over again with our clients that are coming through. And look, I respect that these diets have their place. And I also respect that they're, they're coming from a place of wanting to help others, um, of course. And I think the problem is that they're used more as a sweeping way of applying a dietary, um, I know we sort of don't like the word protocol, but using that as a way of saying everyone needs to eat in this way. And that is my innate problem with them. I think that they can be really wonderful when utilized as part of a treatment plan. So, you know, for instance, with say a more a keto type of approach or perhaps a very um, a low fiber type of approach, of course that's going to fit well into someone's life if they're having some really profound gut issues and they're essentially taking away a lot of the fuel that is providing their um, microbiota with a, a, a lot of the um, the the sort of fire essentially that's causing the problem. So of course they're going to feel better, but all they're doing is controlling symptoms and consequently causing more problems down the track because they're lowering their diversity of bacteria, which is again something we see in the clinic all the time. And and I guess I'm so I'm I'm so passionate about that is is because we we see the consequences. We see the people that come in who have been following these more narrow, restrictive protocols long-term and they have backed themselves more and more and more into a corner. So they might have started just broadly paleo, but then they're, they're because they've just restricted and that's all they've ever done and they haven't really looked at dealing with the underlying problem, their food has become more and more and more narrow and they've created more and more and more fear around food. So I think... 
I just I think that they have their place, and I think if these different types of diets are used in the context of um, a client with a practitioner who knows what they're doing, then they can be wonderful. But I think they also need to be used in a way that they're not seen ideally as long term. Like if we have someone on a some form of restrictive protocol, it needs to be with the intention of growing their food, creating diversity, because we know that. I know we're still in the infancy with so much we're learning about the gut, but we do know that one of the biggest things is that diversity of species is, is where it's at and and we want to create a diet that allows that diversity to grow. One of the things that keeps coming up for me is you can have a good basis of a diet or a good theory of a diet mm-hmm. and then you stuff it up with, you know, like for instance, if you're doing a high fat diet and then mm-hmm. you have sugar you have, you know, you have a bust out and you have sugar. How much time do you have to spend on making sure that your patients really know what a food is, what, what even a, you know, a protein is? Yeah. Ah, thank you for that question. (laughs) So there's a few things in that, but the first thing, um, to highlight is I cannot stress enough how important I think it is and and the practitioners at JCN find it to teach our clients what we call the foundations of health and the foundations of nutrition. The biggest gift you can give to a client that walks into your door is knowledge. And if you can teach them what nutrition looks like, the, those basic foundations of what is protein, what is complex carbs, what is fats, What are good types of all of these macronutrients? How do we combine them to create an ideal meal? What does that look like for you in the context of your food plan? If you can teach them those things, it will give them so much more understanding and and also empowerment um, as they move through everything that you do with them. And then it will help them too. So if they are following a certain type of protocol or a certain type of plan and they do fall off the wagon, they can understand that relationship. So they can say, okay, I was I was eating in the context of this and I've had too much of this and, and through talking through how um, those changes can occur when they have XYZ food, they can understand that relationship. And again, it gives them, it's not great when they can have those um, symptom flare-ups, but they can understand, they can understand why it happened. And it can, it can give them, again, that knowledge to understand, okay, if I, if I go down that path again, this is what's going to happen, but this is why. Yeah. Um, But I'd also speak to that, is that it's important for us to educate clients on the that if they do have a slip up here or there, that it's they're not going to undo everything. I yeah. think, again, there's a lot of fear in this space. So if someone's following a certain type of plan with you and they go out on the weekend and they have a piece of cake or whatever it is, that one meal won't be their undoing. It's it's more that we're trying to encourage them to stay on plan um, and, and the, again, them understanding that it's not that, one meal every second day that's off plan, it's giving them some idea of where there's this threshold, which of course will move from person to person. So I I think it's unrealistic for us to expect our clients to follow things perfectly because even as practitioners, we don't. 
Um, but I think, again, if they can understand why that we're asking them to eat a certain way and have that education, then that empowerment will it, it will be the biggest tool that we can have for our clients. We live in Australia in the highest drinking per capita population in the world. Yes. How do you address this with regards to gut inflammation, what alcohol's doing to even a good diet? And uh-huh. how do you how do you help people to moderate their intake? So what we tend to do, um, and what I would encourage for other practitioners, is we spend a lot of time working out uh, time frames with clients. So this would come into the context of food as well, but definitely also alcohol. So if we can give them a time frame, a rut, and of course these goalposts can move around a little bit, but if if they can see, okay, for the next six to eight weeks, it's really important that I don't have alcohol or if I do, if I must, I need to have this type of alcohol in this context, um, as it will be lower sugar and lower yeast and and so forth. So if they can have some form of time frame, and I find that with whether it be alcohol or with different foods or any form of restrictions, it, it enables them to get their head around that and to know that in six to eight weeks, ideally, if everything's going well, I'll be able to start looking at can I bring that glass of wine in or can I include a beer on the weekends? So I think just trying to tell people like it's out, it's gone without any um, ideas around when we might be able to look at them again, mm-hmm. like, you know, that that can be a bit unreasonable. And look, alcohol, it's hard. Like it is obviously very ingrained in our culture, as you say, and Sometimes it just needs to be bargained as well. Like we we often joke about how we'll chat with our clients about that give and take, and sometimes it might be like someone will say to us, "It's it's just not going to happen. I'm not going to give up my my wine that I enjoy every night." And we will say to them, "Look, that's if if that's your prerogative, that's fine. I want to help you feel better, but you need to understand that the process of getting you from." A to B may be a little bit slower. And, you know, you just, you just, we have to remember that people, um, I know it seems like it's really obvious, but that people are human beings with complexities and emotions and we need to work with that too. But I'm also reminded by, you know, for those who expect much, much is expected. And yeah. so, you know, I, I remember telling patients that and just saying, well, that's fine, but if you're not willing to change, the whole reason you're here is because of where, what you've done previously. So yep. what do you expect to get in six months if you're not willing to change? It's like... That's it. it exactly right. There's a, and then that's where the communication is so important. You know, I know we're coming back to some of those fundamentals of a relationship between a practitioner and, an, and a client, but they are really important. Like mm. we, need to, we need to be upfront with what they ideally need to change to get results. But we also need to be respectful of the fact of what we're asking them and that each person will be a little different in what they're able to give. And surely, surely if we can, if someone's more difficult in what they're willing to change, if we're to say to them, look, I still want to help you, but it's probably going to take double the amount of time and let's work together and getting you there slower than not getting there at all. So, yeah. Now, you've written a book called Eat, right? Yes. Is this the I combination have. of all of your experience? 
It is. So over over all of these things for me has been my passion around food and creating recipes and um, like beautiful tasting recipes that are really suitable for a whole food intake. Um, I, I love developing recipes that also work for different types of intolerances, but also EAT's been a way for me. EAT is an acronym for education at the table. So it's it's also a resource that's been developed to educate people on the foundations of healthy eating, uh, what macronutrients are, how to put them together, um, to encourage people to use a diversity of ingredients in their kitchen because I think there's there's a lot of um, fear around using new ingredients, whether that be grains or different vegetables and so forth. So it's it's really been uh, created to be a resource, which is the start of the book, and then there's about 80 recipes in there that take a lot of um, what the book teaches at the start and shows people how to put them together. So it's really, it, it's a kind of for everyone book. It's um, It would suit any sort of dietary requirements. It, you know, there can be chops and change to suit. Um, and it's also a good, I would say, good tool for practitioners to use with their clients because I understand that not all practitioners are, are as excited and as passionate about creating meal plans as we are and, and and we all have different areas of passion. So I think if if people or practitioners aren't as excited about that space, then it's important for them to find resources where they can direct their clients. So if they do just want to have a basic handout, they can say, okay, go to this website or, um, you know, here's a book or, or here's something where you can take what I'm asking you to do and create some meals that will work for you. Just a last point about caveats, cautions. Um, so mm-hmm. popping up in my mind is, let's say, the brittle diabetic, the unstable diabetic. What sort of words of caution do you have for these sort of people in, in when you're formulating meal plans and changing their dietary intake? And usually, I've got to say, their dietary intake is poor. I think it would kind of be the, it would be the same as to anyone that was in more of, um, I guess, a, a shakier ground for starting is that we have to work a little slower. Like we have to, we still have to educate them and have them understand why we're making those changes. But it might be that we just need to move um a, a little slower and a little bit more cautiously with the yeah. changes that we want to make. And I would probably even, you know, to, to jump from from what you were just speaking of to even someone who may have all these complex gut issues, but they may be highly, say, salicylate or histamine reactive. You know, we, we again, we may have um, a dietary plan that we would love to get them straight onto, but we have to look at the context of them and how we can take that base plan, which I think is so important to have that we can use to build from, but then mould that to suit. So it it, it means with these types of clients, we need to start um, often at a uh, maybe a more narrower space of our our base plan that we usually would and then carefully mould that to suit them. Jessica, there's so much to cover. I'm, I'm so glad that you've written this book because this is something that every clinic should have as a guide, you know, for the practitioner to teach their patients, but also even a waiting room book. It can help, you know, people just pick it up and flick through it and get some little tips and hints 
to change their lifestyle, their dietary intakes for, for the better. So I've got to say thank you so much for taking us through your experience today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The Gastrointestinal Clinical Strategies and Treatment Applications online course by the Karazian Institute is now available on demand. Learn from leading functional medicine expert, Dr. Datis Karazian, as he teaches you how to identify, assess and treat patients with autoimmune conditions. For more information and to book your ticket, click on events under the community tab at fxmedicine.com.au.